This is episode 72 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Many of us get stuck in life because, for some reason or the other, we're resistant to change. Being resistant to change is like being resistant to gravity. We might be able to counter some of the effects of it, but it's always going to be there. There are some amazing gifts that come from embracing change, and Jenny Blake joins me to jam about the ways to embrace change rather than resist it. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash giant and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com forward slash giant. Jenny Blake is an author, career and business strategist, and international speaker who helps smart people organize their brain, move beyond burnout, and build sustainable, dynamic careers they love. Jenny is the author of the forthcoming book, Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One, and Life After College, which is based on her blog of the same name. With two years at a technology startup as the first employee, five years at Google on the training and career development teams, and over three years of running her own business, Jenny combines her love of technology with her superpower of simplifying complexity to help clients through big transitions, often to pivot their career or business. Today, you can find her at JennyBlake.me where she explores systems at the intersection of mind, body, and business. Jenny is based in New York City, where she imagines that she's a star in a movie whenever she walks through its crowded streets. Follow her on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Jenny, thanks so much for joining me today and, and pulling yourself out of the movie star life, you know, lifestyle that you have in New York City. Um, this is going to be a fun, a fun show today. Thank you, Charlie. It's so funny. It's only in my head that I'm a movie star. Only when I have my earbuds in and I'm walking down the street. Only, I'll say, it's, I think it's that way for everybody, though, right? I think <laughs> right. you have to say Kanye West. Like, that's right. Um, that's all. Just don't talk right, to Kanye West, right? You know, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Alrighty. So, you know, it's been five years since you left Google, right? Um, and we were talking about this just before we jumped on the show. You jumped out of Google um, into this crazy world of thought leadership and authorship and things like that. And you did the crazy thing of moving to New York City, right? Um, and as we were talking, New York has its ups and its downs, right? Um, really, what's the thing that fires you up the most about living in New York? 
I love that every time I leave the house, it's an adventure, that it's such a dynamic place filled with people and diversity and noise and smells, but there's also so much going on, the yoga, the food, the conferences, the people traveling in and out. And for me, I feel really alive here, which is interesting because I've only become more and more introverted as the years go on. And so most of the day I am alone in my studio apartment, which is I work from home. And so I like that I can spend most of the day by myself, but when I leave the house, there's a lot going on. So it feels like a nice balance. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably my problem with New York city is every time I'm there, it's in a really extroverted space. Right. So I'm either speaking or hanging out with people and then I go outside and it's all the noise and simulation. I'm like, Oh, just make it stop. Right. If you're visiting, it's a whole nother bag. But for those of us who live here, sanity comes in routine and finding all our ways to recharge and then really choosing when to go hard. Whereas if you just come for a trip, Oh my gosh, you would return home. Absolutely exhausted. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, you're leading up to your launch of your second book, Pivot, right? Um, but let's roll back and talk about life after college. Um, and really how, of all things that you were doing, because there you are, you're doing your thing at Google and life after college, like really, what was the impetus for that? And take us back there. I had actually started the life after college website in 2005. And that was before I moved to Google. And so that's been now over 10 years of working on that. And that was my outlet. It was a way for me to try and give back. I felt really confused after college. And so I wanted to assemble all the resources and books that I had been reading and organize them for other people, which Charlie will not surprise you (laughs) knowing what I do now. The interesting thing is that then while I was at Google, I started working on the book on nights and weekends. And by the time the book came out in 2011, in some ways I was done with the topic already. I was 27 at that time. And well, by no means is that old. I just, I'd already been thinking about life after college and sort of closed the loop on it. But I wanted to see the project through. So I launched the book and rode the adrenaline of launching the book and leaving Google for the first six months to a year of running my own business in New York. And that's really when things started to (laughs) grind, grind to an energetic halt because at that point, I felt like I've talked about leaving things, leaving college, leaving Google, but who am I? What am I moving toward? And that created a really big crisis of confidence that was separate from the outer world activities that everyone could see. How did you handle that? It was, it was hard. It was, you know, when I was at Google and I was debating what to do with my life, I was still getting paychecks every two weeks. <laughs> and... This was the first time where I didn't really have a safety net for that exploration. Now I'm running my own business and I was just feeling fatigued and not sure what my bigger purpose and direction was and how to even go about defining that. And so I paused all of my coaching for six months and it was an excruciatingly hard year. This is 2013. I was meditating every day, journaling, going to yoga, Pilates. I had stopped drinking alcohol for 15 months and still every day was incredibly challenging. And so I didn't feel right taking on coaching clients um, during the most intense six months. So my funds were starting to dwindle as the year went on. But for me, one of my core values is integrity. So it was also really important that I didn't know why it felt like it was taking so long, but I also knew that I, I couldn't phone it in publicly. So I would rather not write and not do coaching and slow down my speaking until I could emerge with something that I felt really connected to. 
What was the moment where you found your spark again? Well, hitting a, a bottom of my own, and I can't even say it's rock bottom because I've been so blessed in my life. And, um, but for me, it was getting almost to zero financially. I was having, getting over a breakup, struggling with many personal relationships in my life. And I remember feeling so exhausted by trying to be happy every day, that optimizing for happiness, what I had read about in self-help books since I was 15, really freaking wasn't working. <laughs> I was, it was awful. And so first I gave up on trying to be happy. And I said, I just kind of prayed for equanimity. Please just let me feel at peace. It's okay if I don't feel happy. I just don't want to feel like this. And the other thing that happened around that time was I kind of looked at my bookshelf and got pissed. I was, you know, I read so many self-help and personal development and business books. I've read 20 so far this year and we're six weeks in. Okay. So mm -hmm. that's the level of, that I frequency with which I read. And I was very frustrated. I felt like none of them were really helping me get out of this pickle. And so that's when I got fired up just like I did with life after college. And I thought there has to be a better way and I'm going to create it. And then I'm going to share it with people. And so that motivating me to become my own patient zero and live in the Petri dish of what I could then create some structure and service around helped me slowly find a way and pull myself out of it. And that's now has turned into the pivot method and the book pivot that will come out this year. So I want to give readers context here because they may not know you, right? And they're definitely not looking at you right now, right? So Jenny, for me, is like that quintessential California smiley girl. Right? <laughs> she's every time I've seen her, she's been gorgeous and happy, right? Oh. And um, so I imagine like, you know, there's pressure to be that person too, right? Um, and when you're going through this sort of you know, dark existential hole, like, you know, um, it's hard to be the genie that everyone knows and loves, right? Well, thank you. That's very sweet of you first. And I feel the same way about you. And yeah, it was hard because I think the, the biggest thing was I felt what is wrong with me? And I felt that when I wanted to leave Google, I felt like, as you know, I must be one of those entitled Gen Y brats. I'm that stupid millennial that's not going to be happy anywhere because I'm at Google doing my dream job, coaching and career development and authors at Google, and I'm not happy. And so I think what happened to me two years later was a similar crisis where I layered on top of the uncertainty a feeling of what's wrong with me. And if I can't be happy living in New York and running my own business with everything that I have, like I'm so ungrateful. And I just felt like, yeah, exactly. As you said, I did not feel like I was myself. I did not have that zest, you know, that I was, that I wanted. And I have this value about around being a clean burning fire. And so I didn't like the feeling of like being an Eeyore, you know, like walking into a room and not being lit up. And, and yet I had to go through that. And I think that any time we go through those periods of our life, and Charlie, I know you've had the same where we, if nothing else, learn compassion and empathy for when we don't get to define ourselves by our work and we have to look inward and deal with personal issues and family issues. And it's not glamorous or exciting or even blog post worthy half the time. It's very private. And, and so I think there's a lot of compassion and empathy that transcends even what we get to then create out of it because we're writers and creators. Yeah. I mean, you're a little bit younger than I am. So you might be much more on the millennial, like social media, sharing everything. And it can get hard when like, you know, people are living social media friendly lives. They're, like, they're on Instagram and it's like, you know, 
hero pose and awesome pose. Right. <laughs> right. And it's just like, you're not there. Right. For a lot of different reasons. And it's just a weird thing. Cause you don't really want to be there, but you kind of do. It's like the FOMO of like, they're living the awesome life and I'm sitting here, um, you know, rummaging through all of the stuff. And, you know, while you were talking about all of the self-help books, it reminded me of a line from the Tao Te Ching, which goes, um, with knowledge, daily gain with wisdom, daily loss. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and just really looking at the fact that so often in times when we get the most, like we, we seek the knowledge out, you know, out from other people. And sometimes that can be, it can lead to the spiral. I don't know if this was true for you. It leads to your spiral that you read it and you're still not satisfied and you read it, you're still not satisfied, it's still broken, still missing. And then it, you get a story of like, I'm doing all of this stuff. Like I'm reading all of this and I don't feel any better. Right. Yeah. I, I think for me, it was also, I was so focused on what wasn't working, what I didn't want and what I didn't know that that wasn't putting any fuel in my gas tank. And part of pivot was I had this light bulb moment where I realized, oh, I do have a book and a blog and a speaking career. And okay, so these things aren't the exact topics that I want to be thinking about in five years, but why do I keep thinking I have to start from scratch? And it wasn't until I honored and acknowledged and built off of or pivoted from my existing strengths and what was working that I dug myself out of the hole. And I had to do that incrementally, which I think was very different than the advice that I would have even given someone two years prior of like, take great leaps. You know, I, I use the motto, like you can't cross the Grand Canyon in two small leaps. And sometimes I think that's true. But for me, the question stopped being, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? And what do you do when your back is up against the wall? Well, my back was up against the wall and that's a slightly different and slash terrifying place you're not at that point really going to try and cross the Grand Canyon in one, in one big leap because that, this doesn't always work. Yeah. So that brings up an interesting point. Um, you know, a lot of times the breakthroughs come right after the breakdowns. Right. And, you know, I was talking to Jen Loudon a few weeks ago. I think she's, you know, maybe four episodes ago. And we talked about this. Um, and I've been thinking more and more like we don't want to engineer breakdowns. Right. Because uh, then we are only feeding drama cycles in our lives. Right. Um, At the same time, there's that spark that happens when you're at that, like, you know, I got to stop navel gazing and actually do something. Right. Or I'm, I'm out of thinking about everything because really the wolf is at the door. I got to get off my ass and do something right. There's, there's a lot of like really good grit and human ingenuity and creativity that happens right in those zones. Um, any, any ideas for like how to get oneself in that zone without it getting to the point where, you know, you're, you're about to be in the van, right? Right. Right. I think about this a lot because first of all, I'm fascinated by blessings in disguise and when they happen and, and, you know, is anything ever really terrible or do we always get to see this blessing in disguise or the gift in the garbage? But Similarly, I I also wondered, well, if we want to be creatives, does that mean we have to be tortured? Is it always going to, co- you know, have to be preceded by a lot of conflict for me to write a book? Am I always going to have to go through this horrible time? And 
I'd like to think that that not necessarily, I mean, certainly those times are very obvious catalysts for learning and growth. But one thing I will say that I'm 32 now, for the first 31 years of my life, my inner realm was a really hard place to be. I was just full of anxiety and worry and overthinking and people pleasing. And I'm not sure there's anything else I could have done. I think part of why I read all those books was just to, to deal with the level of sensitivity in my system. And that's how I coped was to read all that. And it helped to an extent. And then part of what I have found in this new transition is faith and a more spiritual side. And I considered myself atheist almost my whole life. I stopped saying under God in the Pledge of Allegiance in fourth grade because I just thought like, you can't tell me what I believe in. So it wasn't that I didn't, but I didn't want someone to tell me what to recite in my morning. And then in the last few years, I'm part of hitting my own rock bottom feeling that I described. I started to say, I give up. Like, I turn this over to you, divine, God, the universe, whatever the term. I didn't even know what to call it, but I just said, show me the way. And I really think meditation has helped rewire my brain. I've been meditating daily now for three years. And by year three that I'm in now, I feel such a calmer sense of surrender, and I'm willing to be surprised. And my word of the year is serendipity. I don't know where the opportunities are going to come from, but I have more faith now that if I keep putting one foot in front of the other and learn to trust my intuition, that I won't have to muscle everything so hard. And I think my hope is that by having these spiritual practices and being really grounded, that no, I won't have to create a crisis every time, that I can continue exploration and creation from a new place. But the jury is out. <laughs> you know, we'll, see, we'll see how that goes. The jury is out indeed. And so I'm just going to um, remind listeners that this is another conversation where talking to a creative giant with a meditation practice. So it's a very, very common theme. Um, I don't know whether I'm just picking meditators or whether it's just, I, I think, you know, Jonathan Fields wrote about this in this book, Uncertainty, that it creates a certainty anchor for, for us when we live in this very chaotic, disruptive world that we live in. I mean, there's a lot of beauty to, to the world of creativity. There's also a lot of like uncertainty and anxiety and just, you know, um, frustration, loneliness. There's, there's that side of it too. And meditation apparently for, you know, three-fourths of the people on the show um, is a good tool to, to help with that, you know? Absolutely. And some people think, I don't have time to meditate. Uh, for me, it's actually an accelerator because when I drop a question into my meditation session and I'm processing from a different level of consciousness, the answers come so quickly. And I hear my intuition and I know what to do next. And it's not like every day I'm trying to chew on business problems necessarily, but I do give myself the space to ask for guidance. And uh, so for me, it, it's the most important 20 or 30 minutes of my day. And it's, it's a really big business accelerator. And I've also had people say, well, I can't meditate. I can't sit still. And I used to think the same thing. And I would just say that, well, yeah, none of us, none of us do. I've been doing yoga 10 years. And a lot of new yogis will say to me, I don't like yoga. It's not for me. And I'm like, come on, I've been doing it 10 years and I still have classes where I'm bored and I hate it and I, all I want to do is leave. But I know I feel better afterward and the days all even out. But the point is not to like every second of it. It's just to do it. 
Yeah, my favorite part of yoga is the last three minutes where I get to lay down. <laughs> totally. That's totally. my favorite part of yoga. And the, the whole time I'm in yoga, I'm in a pose. I'm like, I just got to wait for the three minutes. <laughs> I, I can do this, right? Well, that's right. And from a teaching perspective, you'll often hear that the whole practice is to lead you up to those three minutes. That actually all the poses we've done, all the work, all the sweating and frustration <laughs> is for those three minutes. And Perhaps the same to be said for creative giants with a meditation practice that we do it so that it's for those moments of insight or calm or equanimity, or that when the crisis does hit, you're more resourceful and resilient within it. And part of the reason I wrote Pivot was I did not feel very resilient to change. And I felt like, why am I getting so rocked and in tears? And like, you know, why am I so upset? Because you, whether you're a creative giant or not, the fact is that all of us are going to be experiencing change more rapidly. The midlife crisis and quarter life crisis, that feeling is accelerating and we're all going to be going through it. And to think anything indifferently is an illusion of security. Yeah. You know, I was doing the research for your book and something that popped out. Um, and obviously we, we have mind share on this one is um, you said that the average career is going to be four to five years. Right. right. Um, and I've been talking about project world for a while. Like our, our world is going to be split into three to five year projects. Right. And you can think about it as a career change. You can think about it as a new business. You can think about it as going to college. Um, and, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot because in the seventies, there was a lot of work in, in business strategy around um, discontinuity, right? Basically that the world, like the, by the time you made a plan, that the reality would not match anything of what the plan was. And so they were really worried about like the sudden discontinuity. And I've been thinking, you know, much along the same ways is we live in a world where there's no continuity. It's not just that we have to worry about discontinuity, right? We just have to like, there's no continuity in yeah. a very real way. And in the way that our parents understood it and, and beyond. One of the things that surprised me the most, I also, so I thought, okay, I've read the stat three to five years is the average employee tenure. When I researched the book, the people I interviewed, the set of people, almost nobody was doing the same thing when I fact checked a year later. One year, Charlie. And there are people who, okay, I did the fact checking, I updated and they're like, I'm now working at a startup. And three months later, they got laid off. I cannot tell you how many people got fired, uh, their company was acquired, then the company shut down, they started a business, they folded their business, that I'm, it is, it is blowing my mind that I think even the stat that we are reading of three to five years, the people I'm talking to, and maybe it's just like, you're attracting meditators and I'm attracting people who are <laughs> pivoting constantly, but um, that's, that'd be even on the high end from what I've seen recently. Yeah, especially people, I was thinking about this, like VPs of marketing, um, the average tenure for them right, is 18 months Wow! Right before they move on. VPs, yeah. like not like people just working in lower levels, VPs at that level, you yeah. have that much turnover. Right? And you're also shifting within the role so much. So even if someone's not quitting a company, the level at which they probably have to be thinking about their career and reinventing it and redesigning it is so much more frequent, even if on the outside, they're not changing the company altogether. Yeah, I mean, Peter Singe came out and wrote The Fifth Discipline, which is about making learning organizations, which at the time was like a really novel thing, right? And um, it's still a fantastic book. So if you haven't read it, like it's one of those to read. Um, it's a thick one, though. I will warn you, it's a thick one. <laughs> um, and the funny thing about it is every team, every organization now is by default a learning organization based upon the things we're talking about here, right? Um, you you got to know that whatever job you're in right now, 
um, you're likely not to be in that past three to five years. You've got to know that your roles, even with we, even when you work at the same company, will shift dramatically. Um, well, that, that's a great nod for creative giants or learning organizations, whether you're a team of one or part of a bigger company that that actually that's a pivot mindset is that I, I am a learning organism if we were to change it for the individual. Yeah. And that's my job and not to make it wrong and not to feel like what's wrong with me if you don't know what's next, that actually we're all going to be asking what's next every few years. And so let's see ourselves as learning organisms and be continuously experimenting and piloting. Yeah. I mean, and the, the, there's a gift and then there's sort of the curse of, of yes. being this mode. The gift is that, like whatever you're doing now, if you don't like it, you're going to be doing something different in the future. <laughs> you're not going to have to do it that long. Right. And the gift is that it gives us the freedom, I think. And, um, you know, I haven't read the book yet cause I haven't gotten a galley. Um, but it gives, it gives us the freedom to let go of sort of that fixed mindset that like I'm in this role. Like if things happen, it's because I'm here. Like it gives a lot of gifts because it gives a gift of freedom. Right. But the curse, of course, is that you don't know what you're going to be doing. Like you're not, how do you make long-term decisions? Do you buy a house or do you not buy a house? Do you like, you know, um, right. how do you know that the partner that you're with is going to be the partner that continue, that you continue to grow with, right? All sorts of questions like that pop up, right? And we never know that. That's what's wild. Like just because someone gets married, we still are not guaranteed anything, which, and I've thought about a lot about that in my own personal life on the relationship front. I just read a book by Carolyn Miss, although it might be Mice, if how you say her last name, it's called Sacred Contracts. And I love this idea that we're born into the world with a sacred contract and you can kind of veer off course, but not really because life will kick you in the ass until you're back on, <laughs> on track. But I do think that although a lot of surface level things will shift and be completely different and so will certain skills that are just going to be constantly evolving we will have constants in terms of our strengths, our talents, and what we really enjoy and what lights us up. Mm -hmm. And so you and I were not podcasting five years ago, but we were thinking over things and communicating them to other people. And so when the podcast medium got launched, I think it takes a person to say, I'm willing to learn this new thing. There's going to be growing pains and I'm willing to invest the time and resources to figure it out, but it's going to fit in with my sacred contract of serving people. And, you know, mine feels, mine is to be as helpful as possible to as many people as possible. So now the manifestations of that are just different channels on the TV set, if you will. And so I think, you know, I, I think a lot of times people feel pressure to define their life purpose and some know it in their heart and gut more clearly than others. And so one thing I talk about in the book is just have project-based purpose. Even if you don't have a definition for your whole life, for the next few years, what is your purpose? What's your mission? What's the thing that's going to take you through the ups and downs? And that I think we can find a little more security in, uh, though it may change as well, of course. Yeah. Another callback, Jennifer Loudon and I were talking very something similar, right? And that how easy it is to get tripped up in this whole, like, there is a passion or there's, excuse me, there's a purpose out there. There's a meaning like capital letters, purpose, capital letter meaning. And, and it can be such, um, such a time suck and it can be such a subtle suck for you because it's like, Oh, I'm not lit up. Right. And so, you know, as you were talking about that, it reminded me of, 
um, I'm very mastery oriented and I know you are too, Jenny. And like, I know that about myself and what that means about myself is that I won't try new things mm. because I can't be a master at a new thing. Right. And so even with podcasting, even when we set it up, said, all right, guys, we're going to do this. We're just going to get to 50. Right. Let's just get to 50 and make any decision because I know we're going to learn so much. I know there's a lot we don't know. Just let's get to 50 and make a decision from there. And that's sort of our strategic tripwire. So when I'm hating it and I'm like, nobody's listening and nobody cares, you know what? I'm not to 50 yet. Right. I just don't like just get there. And then it so turns out by the time we were 50, people were liking it and we had figured it out. So, you know, I think it's just one of those things of making the project, not necessarily going into something and being good but just getting in the damn arena and saying, right. I'm gonna stay here long enough. Right. And I know I'm going to take some cuts and I know it's going to be like, I'm going to fall down, but my job is not to determine the outcome or how well I'm going to do is just get the damn in the arena and stand there and see what happens. Right. And that, like you said, the upside of this change is that nothing is truly permanent. So there's no harm. There's, there, there's a great example of an asymmetric bet on your business or of your talent so that there's really no downside. Okay. So you create a podcast and 50 awesome episodes. Okay, great. If you decide to discontinue, there's, you've really lost nothing. I mean, and, and yet there's only much to gain of people who you get new listeners or new dimension for your existing audience. And that's something I did not make that term up. That's Nassim Taleb who wrote one of my favorite books called Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain From Disorder. But in our careers and in our creative pursuits to be looking for asymmetric experiments where there isn't a lot to lose and there's much to gain. Whereas taking out a second mortgage on your house to quit your job and move across the country and do all that. Like, ah, you know, that's going to send anybody into a panic. <laughs> yeah, you know, quitting Google. Right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I've thought back on that quite a bit, but I figure, you know, I was doing coaching and career development in Google and then I pivoted to do it outside. And I will say coaching has been my most consistent source of income for five years. So I'm very glad that I had started that and established that while I was at Google, because that's been what has kept the rent paid and food on the table for, for the time since I've left, even though I know I don't, my vision is not to be a full-time coach, but yet for five years, that's been the bridge income that's helping me write my book and fund the book and ride out the slow periods while, while I'm working more internally. Well, the truth is, as a solo, like you're full time, you're not full time in anything. Right. <laughs> so you can never be a full time coach. You can never be a full time. Well, I'm not saying that's true, right? You, there are some people I'm thinking of, Jeff Goins, who might be considering himself more of a full time writer, but he's still got courses and he's still got, right. like, we're not full time anything. And I guess that's another one of those gifts is that we have a, an amazing amount of variety through the day, right? Um, yeah, it's like a diversified, diversified portfolio of the day and of our income. So it's like thinking about, all right, great, I'm going to have some stocks and bonds, you know, I'm going to have some safe plays and some bigger bets. And, and then within these, I'm going to have, you know, some that are one to one, some that are one to many. And, and I, I do think that's part of the joy of getting to create our own thing. And for even, you know, even someone who has a side hustle has a diversified portfolio because they've got the day job, which might be 80% and then the side hustle, which is another 20. And that that's actually creating security. I mean, that's the new security in my mind, which is, we've heard this in the online world for a long time, multiple streams of income, but it's nice because if one is low, there are others to keep you propped up. Absolutely. And the best stream of income is your personal brand and just the reputation. Yeah. Like that transcends anything else, right? Right. Uh, 
and it's not, but that's, that's a conversation for another day. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned in the book that career change doesn't have to be a crisis. And we've kind of talked about the creative energy you get from a crisis. Um, but maybe that you're a particularly good person to ask this because what do you do when you're in an okay job? Like it's good or maybe it's the Google situation, right? Everybody thinks it's crazy that you would think like you've worked so hard to be here. It's a great job. There's like, you know, a gazillion people who don't get the job, but it's not like it. It's so hard. I just did my own podcast on this called opt out. And I talked about one of these quotes that I've always loved is you have to say, learn to say no to the good. So you can say yes to the best. And that's always been a driver for me that we are going to sometimes have to say no to something good. Sometimes you're in a relationship that feels fine. It's good. Or the person is a dream on paper, but there's something intangible that isn't working. And I think sometimes we default to the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. Well, I know this devil. I know how much it pays. I know what my days are like. And that, and it's too scary to think about the devil I don't. For me, it was the layer of, am I the crazy one? Am I just, is the grass greener or not? <laughs> you know, people will say the grass is always greener. And that's kind of meant to keep us sitting down and sitting in place. And so to your question of when someone's in a situation where something's good, one of the biggest things is to separate out the gut feeling from carrying out the decision. So decisions have four parts. One is getting clear for yourself. What do I truly want? In my heart and gut, what do I know? What is my life calling me toward? Then the second step is, what are you going to do about it? Okay, so if you're going to leave your job, maybe it's not for another six months, but you're clear at least on what you know in your gut to be true. Then it's a matter of actually communicating it, of putting in the two weeks notice or breaking up with the person. And then fourth, dealing with any of the fallout consequences, aftershocks. And so sometimes I think that we're terrified to even admit that it's the end of the road with this thing that's good. Um, but that's the first step. And to try not to say, well, I shouldn't feel this way or any of these aphorisms, the grass is greener. I mean, no, can you honor that this is your truth? And it's going to seem illogical at first, but that you will work your way there. Yeah. The thing about it is, and I've been reminding this largely since um, Scott Dinsmore died in September, but it's always yeah. kind of been with me, right? Is life is incredibly short. Yes. Life is so incredibly short and the things you mean to get around to, you don't, and you might not have that time. Yeah. Um, and it's this weird sort of paradox. I think mental paradox where like, we always think that that day in which we do that thing for ourselves is further out than it is at the same time that it's incredibly like time is incredibly short, right? It's not. Right. So we live in this weird stage where it's like someday is going to be the right time for me to make that move. Right. And not so much a lot of times, right? Unless it, you do go into a crisis mode and really, do you really want that someday to be three, four years down the road when it's like, okay, like you're, you're kind of that frog in the boiling water, you know, and it's like, I've reached right. that point. It's time for me to jump out. And it's like, what else could you have been doing for those last three to four years? Right. Knowing exactly. that you're going to be doing something different in three or four, three to five years, right? It's like. Exactly. And how do you want to live? Like, does that feel good? What I see is, and this happened to me too, but a lot of times things will start to manifest physically. People have anxiety or they have headaches or they, 
uh, I had one friend who was getting panic attacks every time she got off the subway on the way to work. So the longer that you don't heed that call, there are still consequences, even subtle ones. I had a thyroid condition exactly um, overlapping exactly with the five years I was at Google. And like that could be total coincidence, but it could also be that I was living a really stressful life and lifestyle and that when I left and moved to New York and started having my personal practices and my routines and going to yoga and eating healthy, uh, it cleared up on its own. No medicine and doctors had told me I'd have to remove my thyroid and I didn't. I still have it. <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. And I think that taught me my body is experiencing things even if my mind is not wanting to admit it. And so... Um, our bodies talk to us in the only way they know how. And a lot of time that, that is getting sick or anxious or not being able to sleep. And so, yeah, it's like, what kind of life do we want to live? And I think about Scott all the time too. And when, and when that first happened, it's like, why, you know? And I think for me, it's this reminder that we're not entitled to anything. We don't, we don't deserve anything. We are lucky. Every day is a gift. Our work is a gift. And every day that we get to wake up and do it is a gift. And that's it. That's all we know. We don't, we don't even know how many days we get to do that. And I want to be clear here. I mean, obviously the frame is from two authors and entrepreneurs and things like that. So <laughs> that's our world. And what I would want to say is whatever you do, like if it lights you up, it's not like how you make your money. It's really 100%. how you're spending your time and spending your days. And I'm saying that for people who are out there that have built up a story about them being an entrepreneur, but they're really not happy. They are fundamentally not really? happy because, you know, we don't talk about this. Stuff. We're going to riff about this, Jenny, because we, you get stuck in this mode. Like once you go the entrepreneurship path that like, if you do anything, but you're a failure. Oh my gosh. I'm giving you a standing ovation over here. You just can't see it, which is that 100%. This applies absolutely every bit as much to entrepreneurs who realize this isn't for me. And I have a, in the intro to my book, I say, this is not about fighting against the man and telling everyone to quit their job and work from a beach in Thailand. Hell no. And actually so many people I interviewed in the book had to make that hard realization in the opposite direction. And almost now that feels like going against the grain to say, I don't like entrepreneurship. And the truth is that it's now so much more of a spectrum anyway, like employees get laid off. So they become a contractor. Contractors then will go take a full-time job. If you're fully solopreneur, like you, like me, I might have big corporate clients. So it's so silly to create these dichotomies in our mind. And I get why we all do it, but it's exactly what you said. And also someone may be in a job that's good and not great, but it's paying the bills during a really important time where they just had a baby or they just bought a house and by all means, like that's the point, just align your day to day with your values. And I think that's how we can come to a place of acceptance around it and not angst. Yeah. And whatever you do, don't try to monetize every hobby that you have. <laughs> It'll make right. you miserable. I, right. Seriously. Um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I guess it's kind of on point. I mean, I think it's what it is, right? Because again, some circles, you're an entrepreneur, you're part of the, like you're an author, you're part of the cool kids, all that kind of whatnot. And the thing about it is I'm glad you mentioned having kids like going through a health crisis where you just need the stability of a job and you don't want to be working however long. Right. Cause that's the thing about entrepreneurship and owning your own small businesses. You know, you get to work whenever you want, as long as it's 80 hours a week, right. <laughs> um, wherever and whenever you want, as long as it's 80 hours a week. 
<laughs> right? Um, and so it's just different. And so the real question is like, how are you spending your days and do they line up with the values? I'm glad you went there. Um, because your values might be security and, you know, um, security and tending to friends and family and things like that. And sometimes that could be incompatible with an entrepreneurial slash creative lifestyle. Right. right. And, and considering what is your priorities pie? So if you're going to draw a pie and slice it up, what, where do your values fall? You know, what proportion does each one get? But also that we're not in an all or nothing world. Just because you can't quit your job tomorrow doesn't mean that you can't do small things. And so I think, I think that, I mean, that goes back to something we said earlier, but starting to take more micro steps. Like, as you said, don't try to monetize every hobby, but Hey, you could try charging and see if you like it or if it takes the fun out of it. And why not? I, I did, I taught a geek yoga class once a week in New York and I really enjoyed it. But at the same time, I was always a little apprehensive every week when I knew it was coming. And so I stopped teaching and it felt like a relief, even though I felt like shouldn't I be teaching yoga? I went through yoga teacher training and at the end of the day, no, I, I really enjoy attending yoga <laughs> and I enjoy teaching every now and then, but yeah, I just had to kind of experiment with that to know for myself. Yeah. You know, I was talking to Jeff Hopek a few episodes ago and he was talking about, you know, taking the dictionary and cutting the word can out. Right. Um, and that was largely for young adults, right. Who just been told that they can't do things. I think we should all like cut the word should out of our dictionary. Yes. Right. Because <laughs> when do we ever use should in a way that's self-supporting? It's true. It's true. Almost right. immediately. It's a sign that that's not what the person wants to do. Yeah. So I can almost like, I should be doing this. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, let's come up with another word. <laughs> right. Right. That, right. It would be good for you to do that. Okay. That's, you know, that we have some grip there, but this whole should language, like I should be teaching the yoga because I went through the yoga training problem. Right. <laughs> Well, no, maybe the point of going through the yoga training process was going through the yoga training, right? Right. And I may be so called to teach in three more years, but it's not right now. That's what's so interesting. We don't really know the same way when we meet a new person. We don't get to know up front exactly how this person is going to fit into our life for the rest of time. We may meet at a conference and not see them again for three years, but then it becomes this huge catalyst for something. Or we, we all know people where you meet and you're like instant BFFs and you don't even lose contact after that. And so that, 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 that brings me back to like being surprised and letting part of running these experiments is having an open mindset and just saying, I don't know, like you did with your podcast. I don't, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm going to set a threshold at 50 and then evaluate. And I think by setting things as an experiment and giving it a timeline by which you don't have to chew on that decision every single day is also really helpful because then it decision fatigue, like we have a limited amount of willpower and ability to chew on. We can only chew on so much at a time. So take that off the table for a few months while you enjoy the process. Yeah. And let's talk about decision fatigue real quick. Um, it really occurred to me yesterday because I bought a new iPhone 6S and it's too big and I don't like it, right? Mm. And I went to the Apple store to take it back yesterday and I was one day after the 14 day period and like, we really can't help you. Um, now, in the middle of that 14 days, I'm like, should I get this phone? Should I get that phone? Should I wait for the new phone to come out in March? Like maybe I can just get an iPod touch and then not have a phone because I don't use it that much. So all of this thought, you know, I even made a spreadsheet of like all of Apple's iThings. Actually quite interesting. The newer phones, you could buy an iPad for the same cost. Did not know that, right? Mm -hmm. um, because you don't see all the prices at once until you do. You sit down and make a spreadsheet. Um, 
I walked out of the Apple store yesterday and I was like, you know, I'm going to keep it for a year because I'm under contract for a year. And that's okay. It's just a stupid phone, right? right. Um, but I look at it and I'm like, I spent what, three hours or so just researching and doing things about that, about something that largely speaking, like once that option was closed, um, it was just like, okay, I'm moving on with it, right? Yeah. And so I think the reason I want to tell that story is because when it comes to career change or pivoting or just trying something, I think that's where we get stuck, where it's like all of the different options without saying, you know what, I'm just going to make a choice. I'm going to do it for 10 um, or, you know, I'm going to start a blog and I'm just going to just do it and write 10 posts and that's it, you know? Right. And here's the other thing. When we are going through a really big evaluation moment around what's next, whether it's quit a job, take a job, fold some, fold your business, pivot your business, money, fears, and questions create tunnel vision. This is in a book called Scarcity, which is really interesting that any time our time, resources, or money uh, is impinged that actually creates tunnel vision on purpose so we can solve this really fundamental need. So, so people should just know that when they're facing a big career fork in the road around what's next, that's a huge decision and it is going to gobble up a lot of resources. And that's where personal practices, and this goes back to Jonathan's uncertainty book, that then in those times, the more routine you can create to leave space for the big question, the big kahuna that's already on your mind is really key. So Steve Jobs wearing a black turtleneck every day. I would cook my mom's chili soup recipe for every meal of every week for years, just so it was one less thing to think about. And, and so in doing that, it's also just like you did with your podcast, when it's a big career or business question, it's saying, I'm going to give myself another month or another three months. I'm going to gather data. And I even have a 30-day decision tracker spreadsheet where it helps someone kind of rate how they feel about that area every day. Because sometimes when we're right in the middle of it, we are inefficient at the way that we chew on the question. But if you gather data for 30 days and see yourself as a scientist, okay, then you can check back in on the big question. But otherwise, it's going to be this cloud over every other decision you have to make every day. And that's where it gets exhausting. Yeah. And on that line, like this will seem counterintuitive when you're going into an open exploration place of like find those things that are your fundamental truths. They could be your priorities. They could be, you know, relationships. They could be those, just those constants in your lives and go ahead and put those on the board because that will actually help you make a better decision right. rather than throwing everything up in the air. So just because you might be changing a job or starting a business, doesn't mean that your personal relationship with your partner is going to go away. That's a constant, right? Right. Does not mean that some of these other things are going to change? So you put more constants on there and it makes making that decision far less scary because what we do, you know, when you walk through your decision model, um, I really thought about the fourth step, which was being responsible or being accountable. Um, I'm going to say for the emotional wake of your decision, mm -hmm. right? Um, we always make that so huge, it seems like. Like if I do that, then all of this other bad, terrible stuff is going to happen, right? But when you start putting those anchors down, you realize like the distance between where you are and where you're trying to go is not as big as you might think. It's a change, yes, but it's not that big of a change. Right. Related to what you said about constants, even within the decision itself, you can have known and unknown variables. What are my known variables? Maybe that's the city you want to live in or how much money you need to be earning. And then unknown variables. Okay, the exact type of work I want to do every day. And that 
So even within the decision, parsing out knowns versus unknowns can be really helpful. And then for your unknowns, turning those into questions instead of fears, because a lot of times we focus on the fear side of the unknown, but, but, and we paint that picture beautifully, but we don't paint what the actual positive is or just a more neutral question. How can I earn? When I was leaving Google, it was how can I earn twice as much in half the time? Because I kept asking, what if I end up in a van down by the river? And that was not a productive question. And it was okay that my mind went there, but I had to then counter it with, okay, how can I earn twice as much in half the time? Yeah. Um, and notice the question. So Jenny's a brilliant coach, right? And so she, she dropped something on you without telling you so. I'm not as brilliant, <laughs> so I got to drop it on you, right? Um, it's the question of how can I do it, not can I, right? right? How can I do it? It engages a different piece of your brain than that one that, that lets the wolf, you know, like growling at the door like rain. So, you know, whenever like, rather than, is this going to be successful? How is it going to be successful? How might I be successful with this endeavor? It really does change the way that you think about the problem and thus you get better answers. I even like pairing two things that seem diametrically opposed. So it was on purpose that I said twice as much in half the time, like what? That's shocking. Not just how can I earn equal to my salary? How can I disrupt my life as little as possible? No, it's, so I think when we can find what we think is a total contradiction in the situation, like, well, that's not possible. And go ahead and ask that anyway, you know, shoot for the moon, you'll land among the stars. It's like then, well, okay, if you fall short, like maybe I haven't hit my twice as much in half the time goal yet. Though I think I did one of the recent years, but uh, you, you may not hit it all the time, but by aspiring to that, certainly the answers that come up are more creative and you'll get pretty far away there. So we've been talking a lot about certainty and uncertainty and change in a very general way. Um, but for you, what's really the most unanticipated sort of challenge that you're facing right now? You know, there, I'm going to quote a Donald Rumfeld here, which people make fun of him, but it's actually a brilliant <laughs> statement. Like they're the known knowns, they're the known unknowns, and then there are the unknown unknowns, Right. Uh, and it sounds funny because, but it's quite true. What are the unknown unknowns that you're currently, that are currently washing up on your shore right now? That it's just like, Ooh, I'm here. Yeah. Well, okay. I guess this makes them a hybrid cause I kind of halfway know about them, but don't, I'm pretending that I don't, <laughs> which is, I don't know, Charlie, I don't know how this book is going to make it into the world. I have faith that it will. I believe that when a book is born, it has its own personality like a kid. And it's not really up to me to dictate how well it sells. I don't really care about things like the bestseller list uh, because that feels kind of self-oriented and almost selfish. Like I want this badge of honor, but it's not about getting the message out. And my unknown unknown is like how to market it. Like, I've been in a really, I would say more spiritual inward place to write the book and sort of channel it. And my zone of genius is not marketing. I don't love sales pages and reaching out to people and asking for favors and doing a lot of the stuff that I did the first time around. And this feeling of when I think back to my first launch, kind of like running myself into the ground to launch the book. And so what I know is that I don't want to do it that way. What I don't know is that effort to faith ratio and how to find the sweet spot. And should I line up a hundred podcasts in, you know, the months before the book comes out or do I 
lean into serendipity for the next three or four months and put myself in cool situations and trust that things will happen, you know? So I think that that's what I'm juggling with right now, just on a, a strictly business level, but it, it kind of gets to the core for me because it's, it also affects my income. You know, it's how hard do I push on marketing products um, and trying to make money versus leaning back and just, um, I don't know, just being shown one next step at a time. So yeah. What would make that fun for you? <laughs> Look at the little coach tables have turned. Uh, it's already fun. I mean, the thing is I'm having a blast. It's just a new way of being. So I think it just takes like, I just, you know, in a way I want to take a big gulp, a big gulp of courage <laughs> because it is fun. Um, and what would make it more fun is probably just giving myself over completely to trust and faith and, and surrender. And, uh, yeah, that's fun in a, in an edgy way, I would say. Yeah. Well, I will say on the record now, this is in February. If <laughs> September comes around and you don't ask me to, about to promote the book, or At least book tweet I will be very upset. Right. I will. So I'm going to pull the upset card on you. Right? <laughs> Not that you have to like, not, I'm just going to be upset. I'm just saying. So just okay. imagine me upset. Okay. All and right. I will. Right. There we go. Right. Okay. But okay. But answer me this. Of course, you know, I will put the word out to my friends, but part of me feels like if people like the book, they will want to share it. So part of me, I will put some initial seeds out, but I also feel like I want people to share the book because they love it or they know someone who could really use it. Uh, versus me asking, like, I don't know. So here's the thing. Here's the thing that we authors don't like about the world that we live in. There are scads of books being published every day, right? right. Tons of books being published every day. And it, I read a lot too, right? Very few authors actually ask me to reach out and they know I have the book. They don't actually ask me, Hey, like, you know, we use like, here's a tweet or like making my life easier in doing so. Right. Right. And so I would ask you to approach it from that way is like, assume that people already would want to do it, but they're just people and busy and doing their own thing and so on and so forth. Right. And it's like, if I have to read the book and then figure out like, what's Jenny's promotional strategy? Like right. when is the right time to do this? Like so what does true. she need? Then I've already thought, asked three questions I'm not going to answer. And this is not going to happen. Right. Cause right. You know, I'm going to go make a spreadsheet about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's decision fatigue for you. I'm just passing it along. All yeah. right. I like it, Charlie. That's a great perspective. So, um, you know, we talk a lot about like finding your yaysayers and really helping your yaysayers, like one, proving them right, right? Because we've got your back. But the second is giving them things to do to support you. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where I think you and I might share this, right? We're, we're at the end of the call and here's where the good stuff is happening, whatever, right? Uh, <laughs> it feels awkward to ask for help, right? In a lot of ways, it feels for some people like a taking, like if you ask me to share, then you've taken my time and energy, so on and so forth, as opposed to an allowing, like you've given me an opportunity, right? Mm. To promote you and to be, and to be behind you. And I've been meaning to for a long time. I just haven't known what, right? Oh, right. that awesome. Right. 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 That's something I've been wanting to do. So I think it's one of those things when we see how we feel about helping the people that we love and want to see successful and imagine that, like just, just sort of NLP switching places with them and right. seeing that that's just as true. It changes things. Right. 
That's very true. And I love the term yay sayers. That's, that's so great. Yeah. And you know, it's, as you said, it's also asking authentically. And I think because I've been on the receiving end of so much, what seems like really annoying <laughs> requests, um, finding the right threshold for me. And that's going to be different for everyone. Absolutely. Um, now that's where the art happens. The art of authentic pitching and mm -hmm. asking and making right. sure that it sounds like you and um, doing it in a way that honors the relationship, but at the same time doesn't make people feel guilty for not like that's where things right. get fun. Right. Yeah. Um, so play in that space. How are you going to do that? And how I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Right. How am I going to market the book, get it the reach twice as far in half the time <laughs> and have fun while doing it. Let's add yes. a third dimension on there. Yes. All because right. I love it. If anybody can do it, it's going to be you. Thank you, Charlie Gilkey. That's very sweet of you. <laughs> okay. So if people remember nothing else about you and your body of work from this episode, what would you want that to be? Embrace the wisdom of fear, insecurity, and uncertainty that not only are those things not problems to be fixed, but they're a sign that you're on exactly the right track. You're human. You're a creative giant and doing great things in the world. Jenny, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a blast just like every other time I've gotten to hang out with you. Thank you so much, Charlie, for having me. And a huge thanks to everybody for listening. This is so much fun. Thank you. Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Jenny. What are those places of maybe change or uncertainty or fear in your lives? And what would happen if you looked at those for as a sign to grow into rather than a sign to run away from? How might your life change when you embrace those changes, those uncertainties, and those fears. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.